Many here's here's the publisher's words. Many in the church hold to tradition, even if it's not grounded in Scripture. I, I would agree to that. And these same people who are holding on to tradition wonder at times why the church seems to be losing its relevance. <laughs> well, I agree with that. However, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Tyndale does not necessarily agree with all the author's positions and realizes some readers may not either. Uh, our aim is for you to consider the conclusions and then pray seriously about your response. So I thought that I saw that and thought, well, that's quite an introduction. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? They still published it. But there is, uh, let's let's just say somebody driving along saying, "What are you talking about? Who's Frank Viola? What's the book Pagan Christianity? And why would a publisher have a thing on the front page saying, "Be careful, warning, <laughs> landmines in this neighborhood. You might you might get hurt." What? Um, what is on your heart? Who are you and where did this book come from back in 2002 and now in 2008? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. I appreciate you asking it. I suppose that I'm a person that represents a growing number of Christians in our time. A big chunk of my life was spent in the institutional church from all different, uh, well, in all different varieties and flavors, denominations and movements. And uh, I got to the point in my life where I just... I stopped going to church altogether, but I didn't leave the Lord, and uh, I began to find an experience of church life that I felt was much closer to what we read about in the New Testament, and that sent me on an odyssey, John, and um, I found the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that I never knew existed, and I found the experience of His body in ways I could have never imagined. I began to study where all of what we do in the traditional church comes from. And uh, it, was, it was a remarkable discovery for me because I realized that most of what we do for church, and uh, I'll say as a side note, most of what turns many Christians off from church, uh, are things we do that are, come straight out of tradition, human tradition, and not out of the New Testament. And so I began to document this because I wanted to share it with other people. And as you say, I did self-publish this book uh, in 2002. And boy, I was, my goodness, I was getting hate mail from Quakers. Uh, it, it was just making some people break out in hives. But the remarkable thing is most of the response I got, John, was overwhelmingly positive. And I will say that uh, this is the case today. When, when this book was re-released with George Barna, and that's another story in itself, uh, we have been getting all kinds of responses, many of which have come from pastors who have said, you have put to words what we have been feeling and thinking and struggling with for years. Thank God we're at a point right now where we're ready for some change. What do we do now? And uh, it's causing quite a stir. I'll, I'll say this to you. Uh, and your listeners may be interested to know this if they get on the Internet and look for this book. Pagan Christianity is the most reviewed book by people who have never read it. We have people who aren't even reading the book. They're looking at the back cover and just going into a firestorm and writing reviews on it everywhere. It, it's just amazing the response, both negative and positive. I don't think you can be in the middle on this one. You know, this is uh, it's interesting, it's curious, and it's sad. It's it's almost like some of the politicians, you, you know, you know, you meet somebody who says, I voted Democratic all my life and I don't care what he says. I'm voting, you know, you, and and, we, and, you know, you know, the habit is dictating, the, you know, the activity. Now, a lot of us, 
I've, I've done some shows, Frank, and I've had people, I had a lady write me a very thoughtful letter about a year ago, and she says, sometimes, Mr. Young, it sounds like you're attacking the church. If you want a good church, come to my church. You'll like this church. And the truth is, I don't attack churches. I love my church. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, my, you know, my buddy Gordon McDonald was on the other day, and Gordon made a comment that for the first time in our history, we have five generations in some churches. And he said, if we don't learn to interact with each other, this isn't going to continue. Five right. generations just don't get along. You don't have the the guy up there saying, the older guy saying, now, wait a minute, we've always, always done it this way. Don't y'all come in here with this loud music and your drums? And the kids are saying, I ain't got time to put up with this. We're going to start our own church, or we'll start a home church, and that's what George Barna has been sort of pointing out, that, that now it's kind of cool to start home churches. And in the meantime, I got stuff from the Southern Baptist Convention, the mm-hmm. largest denomination, sitting up there in Nashville with churches, more churches in this city, Atlanta, than anybody else, releasing documented, thorough research that was printed in USA Today, Frank, talking about the dissatisfaction with churches. That's and right. church leaders that I talked to, I said, what do you think of this? I don't know where they're getting this stuff. I think it's just some journalist misquoting it. Trying to, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to, to explain it. And nobody wants to uh, fuss with it because I think if you're a leader of a church, what's your job? Your job has probably now been delegated to keeping everybody happy. Well, that's you, it right you, there. You, you, you know, keeping, keeping the temperatures calm, the emotions calm, keeping the tolerance calm. Let's don't get anybody stirred up. If, if anybody's stirred up, let's calm them down. And that's the way leadership is going these days. And, uh, and then we got people saying, I'm not happy. Okay. Um, pretty, pretty fascinating. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, we are in the midst of a revolution, and it is not small. Uh, Many people are calling it the Second Reformation. In fact, if you look at Time Magazine, Newsweek, ABC News, etc., you will find articles talking about the mass exodus out of the traditional church. Right now, there are 5 to 20 million Christians in America alone who have left the institutional church. The interesting thing is that these people, most of them have not left the Lord, nor have they left Christian fellowship. One of the experts, Reggie McNeil, has made this statement, a growing number of people are leaving the institutional church for a new reason. They're not leaving because they have lost their faith. They're leaving the church to preserve their faith. What an incredible statement. And if you expand that to the world, John, 112 million Christians worldwide Mm. do not attend a conventional church. They are experiencing and exploring brand new ways to experience their faith corporately. And so we are in a very exciting time, and that's the only reason why Tyndale, despite their uh, little disclaimer in the beginning, (laughs) had the courage enough Mm. uh, to publish this book. Of course, when George and I wrote it, we knew this would help lots of God's people. And if my mail is correct and George's mail is correct, many, many, many Christians are being set free. So many of them have been bored to death with the traditional church. So many of them have left one million Christians a year in our country leave the institutional church. That's an astounding yes, figure. Let me kind of park here because this, I can, I can hear some red flags going up. This is almost like people that gripe about Washington, but then they say, but I like my congressman, but, but, you know, but they hate all of Washington. Right. You, know, you know, you hear these stories and think, well, yeah, I can see that. How about your preacher? Oh, I love my preacher. I love my church. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we stop to ask those hard questions. What is 
provoking this because let's let's say okay now you're on a Christian station, so most people listening probably are in a church like mm-hmm. the church or would not would not think about criticizing the church. You know, we right. just don't we just kind of our manners or our culture, Frank, just don't come along to find fault. We you know, we we just sit right. there. And so so what based on what you're hearing, is this a national thing? Is it happening to just the Episcopals because of the issues with the gays, or is it everybody? No. And what are they leaving for? You, you know, what is the yeah, bottom line thing? Well, I'll tell you what. It's across the board. And by the way, if if you're listening to this and you haven't turned it off yet, um, a couple things. One, we are not criticizing the Church of Jesus Christ. In fact, we wrote this book because we love the Church of Jesus Christ. And the Church is not a system. It's not a denomination. It's not a service. It's not a building. It's the people of God. And that's what the church is all throughout the New Testament, and we write because we have great compassion for God's people, and we want to see the church to return to her biblical roots. Uh, We are raising questions, and we are challenging a system and a structure that goes way back to around the 4th century and on that has been unquestioned by many, many people. And it is the present institutional system and the what we call the clergy system that we are raising questions about. And what we're doing is we're tracing the origins of it. We're raising questions and showing where all of this came from. And we're really we're making three points, John. One is a great deal of what we do for church today has no root in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from Jesus Christ. It didn't come from the apostles. It didn't come from any New Testament author. And we document this in the book. We have over a thousand footnotes documenting it. Secondly, we show that much of what we do for church today originated, listen now, hold on to your chair, from Greco-Roman customs, which is the practices of pagans, and they were human-made inventions. And then the third point we make is that many of those practices, George and I believe, actually hinder the church from becoming what God designed her to be and uh, functioning how God designed her to function. And we leave it to the rear to be open to that possibility and to ask this question, are the practices of the traditional church that we have just documented, we've, we've talked about their origins, are they a development to what we find in the New Testament, or are they a departure from it? And I would just say this to you, that, that the Christian listening to this program who says, oh, I love Sunday morning church, I love listening to my pastor preach for 45 minutes, I love you know, throwing my money in the offering plate, uh, listening to the worship band, and then going home and living my life, they ought not to read this book. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have a big warning. It's written in red. Mm-hmm. Warning, if you enjoy Sunday morning church service, do not read this book. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, this book is a bestseller right now. And the reason is, is because millions of Christians, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but, John, millions of Christians are saying, I am not spiritually growing. I am not tra- being transformed. I don't see others being transformed. I am bored. Many of them are bored. They're admitting this. With church the way it is, there has to be more than this. And so consequently, this book is answering a longing. It's answering a heart cry. It's answering a spiritual instinct in the hearts and lives of many of these people. The, the book is called Pagan Christianity. The author, George Barna, and Frank Viola, the, the the thoughts really came from Frank back in the early part of this decade, and now they're being, you know, the timing is right now for this thing to hit right. like a like a like a like somebody hit me in the head here. 
Um, this is uh, Frank. Frank, you're 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 mm, you're you're on to some interesting interesting things here because a lot of um a lot of people are going to try to connect to what are you saying about not growing? I saw something the other day back a couple of years ago. Willow Creek was the epitome of the church that churches that wanted to reignite. Let's just go up, you know, let's go to Illinois with a notepad and copy everything they do. And now a decade or so later, we're seeing their own studies are releasing, releasing figures out of Willow Creek that people really aren't necessarily growing. And I made a comment, somebody made a comment to me the other day that said, and, and, and I, don't, I know Dr. Stanley and his staff listen to my show, so I want you to make sure you all hear this correctly. Somebody said, what's going to happen to that big old in-touch ministry when Dr. Stanley passes away? And Dr. Stanley, if you're listening, I I don't expect you to pass away anytime soon. But however, I said the truth is when Stanley passes away, he's probably still going to be preaching as as good on the radio through tapes than some of the current preachers are because sure. the current preachers don't seem to know who the audience is. They are so right. enamored with trying to get the guy off the street in flip flops and shorts to come to church for the first time. Everything is kind of dumbed down to a degree and it's like okay uh, uh genesis exodus leviticus deuteronomy the fourth book we're gonna go to okay let's all wait till you know he's kind of like going back to grade school or something mm-hmm. and, and 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 a guy that has questions and is trying to just when you get my age you find out that you don't know nearly as much as you thought you did and you want to really be a student we're sitting there going huh ho-hum and there's so many programs and so many skits and so many things and it's like I mean, it's, it's, is, is that part of what you're talking about? It's interesting you mention that. One of the things we do in the book is we trace the origin of the modern sermon. The history behind it, John, is fascinating. I mean, it will blow your circuitry to find out where this idea came from, where one man, one man. the uh-huh. same man, yeah. every week, every month, every year, preaches a 45-minute oration. <laughs> He's being paid to do it mm-hmm. to the same group of people year after year ad infinitum. And we trace the origin of this, and it's fascinating. It, it, interestingly enough, it did not come from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, we certainly believe in preaching and teaching and prophesying and exhorting uh, and all forms of sharing the Word of God. That's certainly scriptural. But the way that we have uh, practiced the sermon... Not only is it not biblical, but here's the problem. We have the assumption that it actually transformed people. Hmm. And the fact of the matter is, all the research that's been done on this, and, and the Barna Group did a, a number of studies on this, shows that sermons are generally ineffective mm-hmm. at facilitating worship, drawing people closer to God, and creating life-changing experiences where they're being transformed. That's a pretty powerful statement, you know. It, it, it is, and it's true. I talk to people sometime and say, okay, give me five sermons that yeah. changed your life. Well, not only that, but here's one. Uh, <laughs> call somebody at 5 in the afternoon on Sunday and say, do you recall what your sermon was that morning? <laughs> and, and, and this isn't, you know, I'm not being a wise guy because I had speech class in college. and it's I know. True. I know, uh, you, you know, unless there's specific illustrations involved, like, you know, where, where you, you, know, you know, people tend to re, uh, remember only a certain point by 2 o'clock and then by 5 o'clock, about 80% is gone, you know, and perhaps more. And by Monday morning, you can't even remember what he talked about unless it's an exceptional sermon. So, yeah, we go. I mean, it is part of a routine. And, of course, too, that pastor that's doing that sermon is kind of running the church in many cases like the CEO of a corporation. Oh, no question about many, it. Many churches in this city are running budgets of 10 to $20 million, 
And uh, the funny thing is the members have no earthly idea what's coming or going. Uh, That's the, all you know, too true. You, you must you know, have read my book, John. <laughs> <laughs> the, the budgets, not only, the, uh, you know, not only do they not give their uh, 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 profit and loss statements to, the, uh, to Senator Grassley, who asked some questions, if you're a member, you can't even find out where the money's coming or going. Only about three or four key members know. It's really run like a very tight ship corporation. And, you know, and I'm sure there's nothing to be concerned about, but it's, it, it gets back to that, uh, that big thing, the buildings. Oh, you, 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 know, you know, we're really hung up. In fact, I love your line about, isn't it funny? When Christians go on vacations, what do we say? Oh, look, honey, that was a nice building we passed. <laughs> we, we're, we're all taken with the buildings. And, oh, look at that. Look how they did the parking lot. Look and at, we always call the building the church, uh, Yeah, which is a monumental problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the building because we also have a whole chapter tracing the origin of the church building. And, and that, too, is it will blow your mind because... The reason why Christian congregations, for the most part, purchase a building, it's not for pragmatic reasons. There are other reasons involved. And uh, for the average Christian, if you do not uh, meet with a church that owns a building, you're not legit. The fact legit in the eyes of the IRS? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, uh, for those uh, two or three listeners who are still listening to this program... Oh, come on. Uh, this is a great topic. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this statistic. In the United States alone, the institutional church owns $230 billion worth of real estate. Yeah, yeah. Let me repeat that. $230 billion. And our faith was born in homes. It was born in places that were outside of sacred spaces. And we got along fine that way for 300 years. Christians did not just start erecting buildings until 300 years afterwards. Now, uh, our point is not that it's always wrong to meet in the building. Our point is simply this. Could it be possible that for most of us, or at least for many of us, the erecting of a building is purely a traditional practice, and we're not doing it because the Lord Jesus Christ is leading us to do it? Think of how many people we could help Think of uh, what we can do with billions of dollars that we're soaking into buildings. And these are some of the questions we raise. And we want readers to think about them because, quite frankly, most of us Christians, I know this was true for me, John, I would go into the church building, sit down, go through the service, stare at the back of someone's head for two hours, go home and live my individual Christian life, never once questioning why we do what we do. Now, uh, Frank, a lot of people, this is like saying, okay, we're all going to stop eating hamburgers for lunch, but I like hamburgers. Well, we're going <laughs> to stop eating. You know, some people are going to say, I, I don't mind this. Right. And, and they may mishear that we're saying this is bad. I mean, some people go to church, frankly, just for fellowship. They aren't really going to right. learn to be a better singer, and they're not going to study. They just want to see and be seen. They, you know, their buddies are there. It's kind of a social thing. Of course, they, right. could, they could also meet at Starbucks or, you know, <laughs> right. you know, they could do like the Episcopals, rename it St. Ar- uh, uh, Arbucks, and <laughs> go, go, go. that's an old joke. But uh, anyway, the, um, in, in, in this book, um, you say a lot of Christians find the Sunday morning service just, frankly, boring. It's predictable. Uh, this, this, this is one of the things, it's sort of like going to your mother-in-law's house at Christmas, and you really... You really hate her cooking, but <laughs> but but you can't criticize it. I mean, you know, you just can't go there. Right, right. So so even if you think, oh, they're right, you wouldn't dare discuss this with other brethren and company. Seeker-sensitive churches have recognized 
the third service is largely sterile, and they yeah. have in, in, in come along and been in big screen TVs and made it very modern. But despite all the entertainment, mm-hmm. the market-driven, seeker-sensitive service is still held captive. The center of attention is that one pastor. And every Sunday, we all attend a service to be bandaged and recharged like all the other wounded soldiers, but far too often the bandaging and the recharging never takes place. Folks, let's face it, the Protestant order of worship is largely unscriptural, impractical, and unspiritual. Now, for those who are, like in my age group, that are saying, that is heresy, you shouldn't say that, let's ask this question. Where are our kids? Where are the 20-year-olds? Where are the 30-year-olds? You know, know, we, we can sit and be comfortable and say, Frank, John, both of you are crazy, and you're just trying to pick a fight. But folks, our kids the ones we spend so much money on to go to a private Christian school, <laughs> mm. thinking that, oh, this will get them, this will make them good and grounded. Folks, they're leaving the church in droves, and if you don't That's have right. a prodigal in your family, you know 15 other church members who do have prodigals. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, Frank's a solid guy. George Barna, I dearly love these guys. They're not sensationalist. And Barna, I'm going to tell you, most of the profits from his books he donates back to stuff. He, you know, he's not driving a Lexus Triumph, you know, from book sales. Uh, you know, his money goes elsewhere. So, this, this, you know, their heart is here. You've heard the your pastor quote Barna. This is the guy they're talking about. Frank Viola and George are on a page. Let me. Um, it's it's it is interesting. Some people will say bad things about you behind your back, of what they think you're writing about, Frank. And then many people who are saying, finally, here's a voice. And yet the truth is. This is like this is like this is like the talk show host Neil Bortz trying to get a fair tax in and the IRS out of business. I mean, we're 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 kind of fighting an institution. Things are the way they are, and if we want to change, we probably just need to start our own thing. I mean, is it is that the conclusion? I would take my cue from the Anglican scholar John Stott, who I dearly love. Mm-hmm. He said this: the hallmark of an authentic evangelicalism is not the uncritical repetition of old traditions, but the willingness to submit every tradition, however ancient, to fresh biblical scrutiny and, if necessary, reform. And I think, really, this comes down to being sensitive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The real question here is, is Jesus Christ being satisfied with what we have on the earth today? And uh, every Christian has to answer that question for themselves. And, you know, I, I have no uh, hopes that uh, the institutional church is going to fold, and, uh, you know, 20 years from now everybody's going to be meeting in a New Testament fashion organically, where Christ, is, uh, his headship is being embraced, and all believers are functioning and living uh, as a community and a family and all that. I have no such hopes, no more than Martin Luther did when he went against the Roman Catholic Church and uh, the Reformation was born. I mean, we still have the Catholic Church on the planet today, and that's fine. But there is a growing number of Christians who are longing for something deeper, something richer, something more authentic, something more effective in the way of their church experience. And one of the pieces of mail that we get constantly, it it always sounds the same, Mm. it's this, thank God I wasn't out of my mind. (laughs) You have put words... You have given language to what I have felt for years, 
but I had no idea what that was all about. I hadn't. I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea what it was. I couldn't put my finger on. Now, isn't that funny though, Frank? That they don't mind writing you, a complete stranger, a letter, but if they took that same comment to a church leader, what would the reaction be? Oh. <laughs> Well, I don't want to predict. I mean, I'm sure different ones would react differently. It's interesting. Some of the harshest mail that I have gotten has come from pastors, but some of the most wonderful and moving mail has also come from pastors. Pastors are reacting in two different ways. Uh, I have a friend who's in the ministry, and he travels all over the world, and what he's observed, he just put out a newsletter, and he said, I am absolutely blown away by the number of former pastors who have come up to me and told me that they left the pastorate and that they are serving the Lord in different ways today. Mm. And so I think what we're seeing is a mass exodus, not only of Christians leaving the institutional church and still following the Lord, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also seeing a mass exodus of pastors leaving the pastor system And uh, again, this is no reflection on those who feel comfortable with it and feel that they're serving God with it, and if they can justify it scripturally and in their mind and heart, that's no problem. But we want Christians to ask questions. We want leaders to ask questions Mm. and to take their cue from John Stott and go back and look at all the things we're doing in the light of the New Testament. And instead of trying to you know, play pretzel logic with the Bible and justify it and rationalize it, really take a good, clear, honest look and say, is what I'm doing biblical? Is it in harmony with the principles of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles? And if someone can read our book and a- answer that question affirmative, then we say, you know, amen, we, we've done our job. We're wanting people to think and rethink. And uh, I don't know when that became a crime. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, Frank, this is, this is great sounding. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated, though, to hear that, um, that a lot of Christians feel with their church like maybe we do with Congress. You know, I could raise a point, but they're not going to change. Yeah. When you have pastors that are saying, Frank, I studied for 10 years to be a pastor. This has been my life calling, but I changed careers? I mean, I thought he was supposed to be the change agent. Somewhere along the way, we've got a system that has become stuck and mired to where they can't hear. You know, it's it's almost like the uh, illustration you would use of, um, remember back in the days when the post office was, had no competition and, and, and it showed when you went to the counter? And, and, and then FedEx came along and some other competitors and UPS. And all of a sudden, the post office had to kind of jazz things up. And, you know, they, you know, they saw competition. They got better. Same with airlines, same with any, any, any business. And, and, and at the end of the day, the church is a large business. Yeah. I, I mean, from the corporate, you know, That's the budgets, true. the payrolls. Uh, you know, I mean, you've absolutely you, you've got to keep them coming back. You, you all of a sudden you got a built-in overhead of five or six and million dollars. That's part of the problem, right that's there. The, well, then how? You know, but every time you've used an illustration here, you refer to people leaving the institutional church. Why? Why can't we band together without starting a big fight in the in the in the lobby or the foyer? Why can't we? Why can't we be heard? Why? Why can't we? Uh, is, was was that question as dumb as it just sounded? As I, as I just well, heard myself the, saying the, it, sounded the funnier, the funnier I think about it, the longer it gets. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I, it it breaks my heart to think the only answer is okay. Let's all just let's all just leave. Let's let's all just leave. <laughs> well, I mean, somebody's going to stay, but it's like 
that's that's as good as it gets. Well, I think there are some very bold and daring pastors who uh, have been willing, and this has happened, it's happened historically, it's happening in our time, to make radical, radical changes. In other words, not just patchwork, not just Band-Aids, and that's what we've had for the most part over the last 50 years, is tweaking a system that is self-defeating. But that there are those pastors who have paid the price and the cost mm. to make a radical transition and uh, have moved in a direction that is more in harmony with what we read about in the New Testament. I'm talking about the organic nature of the church. But on the other hand, uh, I, I make this observation when I read the New Testament, and it came right out of the mouth of our Lord. Mm-hmm. And he basically said that there is only one thing that can stop the living, breathing Word of God. And mm-hmm. if you read the book of Isaiah, you know the Word of God prospers wherever it goes, and it has the power to destroy the devourer, and no thing can stop the Word of God. Well, there is one thing, and Jesus Christ said it himself. It is this. By your tradition, mm. you make void the Word of God. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God, mm. brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. Mm. Now, Ralph Neighbor said the seven last words of the church are, we never did it that way before. And so <laughs> consequently, it's going, to take, it's going to take a monumental, paradigm-shifting cage-rattling, bone-breaking, cross-bearing change in, in the hearts of leaders if they want to see their particular congregation break out of the traditional system into something more biblical. That's name, my opinion now. His name is Frank um, Viola. The book is called Pagan Christianity. I'm going to come along as a devil's advocate here, Frank, to uh, stick up for the happy consumer that may misunderstand our intention. The book Pagan Christianity, you... Um, about everything you target in the book as needing to be tweaked is uh, are things we do. You uh, there's there's uh, there con- there's there's there is concern about the church buildings, the order of worship, the sameness, predictability. You know, two songs of prayer, Lord's Supper, and the sermon. You know, um, the sermon, the pastor, the Sunday morning classes, the costumes, the all the ministers, the minister of music, the family ministers, um, the salaries. Um, um, but, but you do believe in baptism. Um, let's see. <laughs> yeah, we believe in one thing, baptism. <laughs> but, but I'm sitting here thinking, now, if we went into a church and said, okay, now here's, uh, okay, yeah, there's, yeah, the, uh, leaders, there's only nine things we have a problem with here. Your salaries, the building, the, uh, the order <laughs> yeah, of worship. And, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, what's, what's left? I mean, some, somebody would say, my goodness, this guy. This guy's really one un- unhappy customer. He says he loves the Lord, but what does he want a Sunday morning service to look like? Right. And that's where we get to the organic church. But what do you, I mean, okay, I'm a traditional church-going guy. If, if I came down to Gainesville, took you to dinner, and said, hey, let's go to church tomorrow morning, Frank, would I be uncomfortable? But what do you do in your service that I don't do in mine? Ah. Uh. Well, I'll just say this. That's an excellent question, by the way, and I hope we still have listeners on the line. Here uh, we, have, hear this. we have two left, and one's nodding off. Say something exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, uh, well, it was interesting. You said you were getting ready to be devil's advocate. I thought you were doing that the whole time. Um, anyway, <laughs> Come on now. The, the, um, the fact of the matter is we do believe in pastors. The, the New Testament is clear that they're shepherds. The question is, what did the shepherd look like? 
in uh, the teachings of Jesus and in the examples of the New Testament, and what does it look like today? And what we're arguing is it's a very different creature today. It has almost no points of contact with the biblical meaning of shepherd. Same thing with church. Church is not a building. Buildings, uh, we believe, that were originated from traditions that really are not compatible with the Christian faith, although, you know, it's possible to meet in a building and to, and to be honoring to God, but a lot of what we have on the earth today, we just question that. What you would see in an organic expression of the church, first of all, you would see a group of believers who would not see themselves as just individuals coming together once a week to hear a message and then go home and live their individual Christian lives. You would see a living, breathing community of people that love each other like a family. And uh, this is why the greatest metaphor in the New Testament to describe the church is, in fact, a family. Uh, Secondly, if you came to one of the meetings, you would not be preached under the table by one person. Uh, Neither would you be sitting in pews looking at someone's uh, neck for two hours. You would probably be in a circle or in a square. Mm -hmm. And here's the beauty of an organic church meeting. Everyone, John, would be sharing out of the depths and riches of Jesus Christ. Everyone Everyone would be edifying one another with the living, breathing Word of God. Everyone would be ministering and functioning and participating. And God's people, uh, most of us have been habituated to be passive, uh, except if we're just somebody who likes to talk a lot, then we we are habituated to dominate a meeting like that. But uh, there are ways of equipping a group of Christians to function together in such an open meeting where Jesus Christ is glorified, revealed, magnified, displayed, and honored and worshipped. And it is such a powerful thing. And like we said earlier, where most of sermons we hear, we forget about them two hours later. When you are sharing yourself... Mm with other believers, and hearing not from just one, but many, you walk away, and as I'm quoting Paul now, you walk away from that meeting and you say, God was in the midst of that group of people. How did you, um, so many of us look to the pastor, look to that church, look to, uh, I don't know, Charles Stanley on TV or something. They look to that to, here's a term you hear a lot up here, feed them. Oh, right. I got, oh, Pastor so-and-so fed me today. Oh, my, what a, oh, I got fed. What'd you give? Oh, I fed, I was fed. <laughs> so, so, so what, how does a guy like you, and, and for that matter, George, right. uh, leave, leave a church, be at a house church or organic church, whatever term you want to use, how do you keep your personal spiritual life disciplined in a world of so many distractions. Do you mind if I pry into your own life and tell me sure. how, 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 do, how do you do it? Because some people, honestly, Frank, need that, for lack of a better term, thumb in their back of having to be there at a certain time, being somewhere at a certain time, to do anything at all, anytime. Right. Well, I'll tell you very simply, I've been meeting this way for 20 years, and uh, that's when I left the institutional church. I've never been back. And I will just say to you that my spiritual life has grown leaps and bounds since I've been out. Now, you know, I'm by no means perfect. I don't think George is, although sometimes I wonder. Uh, But I will just say this. uh, We who meet this way in the circles I run around with, John, the brothers and the sisters in Christ who are part of these churches, we get together not once a week. We get together all throughout the week. And oftentimes you'll find two brothers, and I'm speaking of two men now, brothers in the Lord, that will get together sometimes in the mornings. 
And uh, they will pursue the Lord together in Scripture and in prayer. Mm. And then the same thing with sisters. They'll break up in pairs, sometimes in threes, Mm. uh, during the morning or the evening, during the week. And then they'll come Mm. together for one of their corporate meetings. Mm. And they have prepared, not just as individuals, Mm. but together. And this gets back to the whole community dynamic of the church. Community doesn't mean it's a group of Christians that meets together once a week for a program or a service. It means that you have a shared life together. And uh, that extends during the week. We spend a lot of time pursuing the Lord together in small groups during the week. And then when we come together for that corporate meeting, it's not a service, it's a corporate gathering where we come together to display uh, and to share and to minister what we have received from the Lord during the week together. And we don't believe that the Christian life can be lived as an individual by yourself. That's one of the flaws of the institutional church, Mm. I believe, or the errors, is the assumption is you come here for Sunday morning worship, you hear the sermon, you praise God, and now you're going to be a great Christian during the week. Mm. We don't believe that. Uh, We need to be pursuing the Lord constantly, and most of us don't have the willpower to be disciplined to pursue Him. So what we do is we drag one another to the Lord during the week. It will not be uncommon for you to see gatherings like this where the men will come together during the week and be with the Lord, spend time in His presence during the week, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evenings. And uh, it's something that's going on all the time, having dinners together, taking yeah. care of one another's needs, just like the early Christians did. It's, it's very unselfish. You know, I was sitting here, Frank, remember a couple of years ago back when Promise Keepers was blowing and going? And you'd yeah. see guys that would drive all night to some city two states away to go. And they came back on a cloud. They were just so fired up. Yeah. And uh, then they'd start that small group with men at their church. And it lasts about two months. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and somehow, you know, Frank, we've been conditioned uh, to to not be that open and not to share. And we don't seem to be especially bothered that we are sitting next to somebody in the pew and don't really know them. And yep. our churches are too big to know anybody. So we come as strangers and we participate as members, but we leave still not knowing anything because everybody's trying to get away to go do whatever whatever else they're doing on Sunday. And and we call that normal, you know, because because it is labeled as church activity. It's, well, I guess it's the way it is. One yeah. thing I really like about, well, several, many things I like about the book, I want to go to the way you end the book, that if somebody is unhappy with their church, um, if they are wanting to leave and get more than your church can offer, don't sit there in your church and try to change everything, to have us versus them, to get That's 20 right. people on your side to go have a meeting with the elders and say, if you don't change this now, we're leaving. I mean, don't, here, here are your words. Leave quietly and do not take anyone else with you. Do not cause division. Resist becoming bitter against the institutional church. If you've been hurt by people in the church, take your pain to the cross. Harboring bitterness is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to get sick. Few things are as lethal. Then actively seek Christians to fellowship with around Jesus Christ. I think that one, I think those four lines on page 269 sum up your heart about as good as anything, Frank, because you're saying, honest, I don't care what you read, what you thought, what you heard. I'm not trying to divide the church. Absolutely. Amen. Uh, and, right. and, and I'm sitting here saying, you know, do this, but don't make a scene. I mean, you know, the Lord wouldn't want that. And throughout this, George, I know the way his he thinks he is 
edited and rethought. I'm sure George read every paragraph and thought, now how would so-and-so react to this? Or how would somebody at Chuck Swindoll's church, or how would somebody at John MacArthur's church react if they read this paragraph? What can we say to make sure we're not misunderstood? Because we're not going to start a fight. We just want to make a point. That's right. Uh, Frank, you got another book coming out, too, this summer um, uh, called Re-Imaging the Church. Reimagining Church. Oh, that's right. August 1st. Yeah, reimagine. I went to public schools. I don't always get the words right. (laughs) Reimagining Church. I had to have somebody translate it for me, so don't (laughs) feel bad. Um, um, It's interesting. You said you left the organized church 20 years ago, and just now... 20 years, you know, I mean, talk about patience. 20, it t- 20 years it's taken, and now people are gravitating, saying, tell me more. I'm, I've been thinking this for years. Where have you been all my life? Isn't this interesting, the way the, way the Lord's using you, honestly? And I do think the Lord is using you. Well, it is interesting. And when I first left the institutional church and, and tried to explain to people who were in it, asking me questions, I'm, well, where do you go to church? Okay, well, we meet in a home. Oh, really? Hmm. Uh, we don't have a pastor. Hmm. They would look at me as if I came from Planet 10. But now we're living in a different time. I'm just thankful that God's people are hungry for Jesus Christ. You know, one of the points that we make in the book, both in the beginning and the end, is that we are trying to do one thing, and that is to clear away the clutter and the debris to make more room for the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is the only head of a church. You will never find in the New Testament the word head of the body to refer to any human being. It's Jesus Christ. And uh, this next book that will be coming out in August, John, is going to explore what does a church look like when it's under the headship of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? How does it function? We all say the church is an organism, not an institution. I mean, that's on the lips of most evangelical Christians. Well, what this book does is it asks the question, fine, what does that mean practically? What does an organic church look like? If a church is an organism, what does that mean when it hits the earth, brass tacks, uh, nuts and bolts? What does that actually mean for us? And so what I try to do, John, is I try to paint a picture. It's called reimagining church. Try to paint a picture of what church can really be. And the interesting thing about it is it's not armchair philosophy. It's my experience over the last 20 years of what church really can be and uh, hoping that it will speak to many, many Christians who have left the institutional church to show them that there is another alternative. It's going to take a lot of work because so many of us have equated, as you said earlier, the church building to being church, and yet we've all known that we, I'm the church, you're the church. Right. You know, not the building, but we've we kind of got it backwards. But, you know, there's a thing called pride, Frank, and for many of us, um, if we've gotten off track, it's hard to see it and admit it. I mean, hey, I've, I watch enough Dr. Phil to know that there are couples everywhere who won't admit that they made a mistake. I see him every afternoon on TV. Yeah. Uh, you, you, I love the chapter on dressing up. And this, this, this may get some people who spend all morning get on, you know, buying nice clothes just to go to church. <clears throat> but you write, dressing up for church violates the reality that the church is made of real people with messy problems. You see, wearing our, quote, Sunday best conceals a basic problem. It just pumps up the illusion that we are somehow good because we're just dressing up. But let's face it, as fallen humans, we are seldom willing to appear to be what we really are. We almost always rely on our performance or dress to give people an impression of what we want them to believe we are. Mm, Boy, I mean, this this church has so many power-packed paragraphs. I could see somebody buying this book, Pagan Christianity, 
And you know what? Even if you aren't ready to do what Frank is talking about, you can just turn to any page and you can have your entire Sunday night small group go over some of this and mm-hmm. probably talk about this till till midnight. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. Because even if you don't want to go as far as Frank, I promise you, he's going to bring up something like the way we dress, how we dress, who are we kidding about the dress. He's going to bring up those points, and you're going to think, my, my, that's profound. Because, see, we always see research about when visitors come, what do they see, what do they think. Right. And and we always say, oh, they just misunderstood us. We're the friendliest place on earth. What do you mean nobody spoke to us? <laughs> They must have misunderstood. That's not our fault. We were sitting in our same pew talking to our same friends. They they misunderstood. There's yeah. a there's just like just like your mother told you when you were growing up and you were fighting with your brother. There are two sides to every story. Mm. Within this context, there are a couple of sides. And uh, Frank and George Barna are making a brilliant observation about a side. And plus, there've been several books that have come out in the past year dealing with this, everything from Gordon McDonald's Who Stole My Church to uh, Jim Palmer's book, Wide Open Spaces. There's another one about uh, what to do when you love the church but hate the people in it or something like that. It's, you, know, you know, there are really, I mean, there's a whole series of people that are finally, like, getting it off their chest. And um, this one is the lead one right now. It came out instantly. Some of the Christian bookstores are not selling it. We do have it at Sweet Spirit. But it instantly went up to the top ten at Amazon. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Somebody's going to buy this book. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you brought up uh, the dressing up for church, and the history of that is fascinating. You know, we just assume, many of us Christians, that what we do for church on Sunday morning has been done all the way from the first century when the New Testament Christians... uh, had uh, their church meetings. And the fact of the matter is, it's a very, very, very recent invention. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just explore some questions. Also, mm-hmm. too, John, George and I have created a discussion guide. It can be downloaded at paganchristianity.org, where small groups, as you mentioned, can take that discussion guide and go through every chapter mm-hmm. and deal with some very practical questions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, readers don't have to agree with us on everything to benefit from this book. That mm-hmm. discussion guide will really navigate them through a lot of thoughtful discussion on every chapter. The book is called Pagan Christianity, Frank Viola, George Barna, Will you ever talk to me again? Oh, I'd love to. Because I promised that I would keep you for a certain amount of time. I got so wrapped up. We have, when you look at your watch, you're going to realize we, I, I overextended my welcome. I'm like, I'm like your brother-in-law that came at Christmas and wouldn't leave. <laughs> well, uh, and, I appreciate it. My and, goodness. Uh, uh, I, I want people to hear you clearly, and you have been far more generous than I deserve. I've enjoyed every second of it, and I hope I've not worn out my welcome. If you want me to take your phone number and throw it in the trash and never call you again, <laughs> I will. But, no, but, I, but no, I don't want to scare you, you because I'd like to be have you on again one day. Oh, no, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll be there in a heartbeat, sir. You've been more than gracious. Well, it sure beats watching American Idol, doesn't it? I mean, oh, this absolutely. is a lot more fun. 